Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, the Mexican peso today uh, is close to its weakest since December as trade tensions emerge from uh, the U.S. And there are questions, frankly, about the health of the Mexican economy here joining us in studios, Ed Al Hassani, he is senior interest rate and currency analyst for Columbia Threadneedle Investments, uh, the firm oversees $459 billion from Minneapolis, although you are here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios. I want to talk about the Mexican peso. How much of this has to do with the economy itself? We did get last night Moody's and Fitch downgrading the nation based on Pemex, its state-owned oil company, as well as other economic headwinds. And how much is due to uh, potential ramifications from these U.S. Mexico trade tensions. Yeah, I'd say at the moment I'd put more weight on the former in terms of the weakening economy, the contingent liabilities from from Pemex, um, um, and the fact that you know both fiscal and monetary space in in Mexico is shrinking relatively quickly. Uh, you know that to me is kind of the key set of drivers for for a weaker peso. In terms of trade tensions with the U.S., we actually haven't started pricing that in too aggressively. We haven't seen that in U.S. risk assets. We still haven't seen it fully priced into uh, Mexican risk assets either. So I think from from the perspective of upside downside for the Mexico uh, for the Mexican peso, I think there's still more downside to come through. So Ed. Um Earlier today, we had uh, Mario Draghi from the ECB, uh, you know, give his commentary. What did you take away from it? Yeah, I thought, you know, this was, for me, one of the more interesting and, and one of the more consequential meetings of the past two years. Um, a number of things came out. First, we cemented the fact that the path for policy rates really is flat to lower from here. Uh, you know, this is an important change for them versus where they've been over the course of the past you know, year plus, uh, there's been sort of an implicit upward bias to to the rate story, and I think that's now gone. The discussion about deeper negative rates and additional QEs now firmly on the table, um, and I think that's that's a new part of the discussion as well. And um, you know, in terms of the growth and the outlook, uh, uh, the growth and the inflation mix and the outlook, you know, that continues to to weigh to the downside. So in terms of downside risks, continue to intensify. So the ECB is in, it's in a tough spot. It doesn't have a lot of tools, but in terms of the tools it does have, I think the willingness to use those tools to ease policy has increased. The interesting thing to me, first of all, the ECB is pushed on a string at this point, right? I mean, if they cut rates further into negative territory, what's it going to do? Because it's not exactly fostering loan growth to a tremendous degree among consumers and riskier businesses. Uh, so that's that's a big question. Um, but it's also a question from your perspective, from the currency perspective. Today, the euro is strengthening versus the dollar. What gives? That's not what you would expect. Sure. So... Um Two things. Let, let me push back a little bit on the on the credit growth story. The credit growth story has actually been one of the bright spots for for um, the eurozone and, and the ECB, and it's been one of the success points in terms of the success of Teltro programs. The fact that the European banking system, which is relatively weak, relatively undercapitalized, has actually seen very solid loan growth. And what the ECB doing right now is essentially risk management. They're seeing these risks intensify to the downside, which essentially means they can at best maintain their current policy stance. Um, but more likely, they will increase the amount of easing just to keep the current level of credit growth alive. Um, and one one interesting, I think, takeaway, I think, from the last 
you know, take four or five, uh, you know, ECB discussions on the negative rate is that they've come to the conclusion that in aggregate, the impact of negative interest rates on loan growth is negligible. There are definitely certain banks where uh, negative rates are eating into profitability, but the fact that they're providing these Teltro loans essentially cushions the banking system, and the banking system overall continues to do quite well. So given the rising trade tensions around the world, really, it's China, Mexico, maybe India, and so on, where do you see value in emerging market currencies? So I... One of the more interesting, I think, turning points in the course of the past, you know, month or so has been the, the break in the dollar. Uh, it's it's very early days, but it does look like the the buffer we had for the dollar versus developed market currencies has shrunk significantly. We had essentially U.S. growth that was more solid than European and Asian growth, and we had U.S. interest rates that were significantly higher, both in, in real and nominal terms. That buffer has shrunk very aggressively with the Treasury rally uh, and with growth expectations for the U.S. being being downgraded. And we've seen that turn in the dollar versus the euro. Uh, and to Lisa's question earlier, you know, this is one of the reasons why the euro continues to rally today, despite despite the fact uh, that the ECB has uh, announced you know additional easing measures. Uh, U.S. real rates continue to come down. Um, that weakness in the dollar, I think, will start to feed into EMFX. And the question is, are there idiosyncratic stories where you know real yields are high enough uh, to provide us with that buffer? Uh, a couple of currencies rise to the top of my list. I think uh, you know Russia is a good spot. Um, limited external vulnerabilities, very good fiscal picture. Uh, Indonesia is another one uh, where there's, an, and there's been an improvement in the growth story. Uh, and increasingly, we're starting to take a look at South Africa, in part because the currency has weakened quite significantly uh, over the course of the past month. Uh, so from a value perspective, I think that, that looks quite attractive. The Turkish lira? The Turkish lira is, is interesting because, look, on, on, on most valuation metrics, it, it screens exceptionally cheap. Um, and the question is, is the current account or some of the external vulnerabilities shrinking fast enough to warrant the carry, are you going to ever get? Are, will you ever get paid that carry? Um, and you know, increasingly, it's not terrible. Um, I would say the picture there is becoming a little bit more positive. Uh, real rates remain quite high. Obviously, there is policy risk with respect um, uh, to to the central bank's next set of actions. Given that inflation is coming down, there will be under pressure to cut rates, uh, which will be negative for the currency. Policy risk, by the way, is the understatement of the year when it comes to <laughs> Erdogan's uh, regime. But go on. But look, I mean, look, uh, we're we're in 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 EM space. This this is what you live with, and this is what you're getting paid for. Um, uh, policy risk in in Turkey and in, in uh, Argentina. Take another place. Uh, where you have high 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 carry at this point, um, I would say, of course, Turkey and Argentina are at an extreme place in in, in the EMFX spectrum. Uh, high risk, exceptionally high carry, uh, and it's not very clear that you'll you'll make money over the next twelve months in those places. So I'm going to take the risk and not clear that I'm going to make money. So I think I know where to kind of avoid a little bit. Uh, that's hey, my- there's no there's no big return without <laughs> big, risk. big risk. So <laughs> there you go, right? I mean, yep. Ed Al Husseini, thanks so much for joining us. Ed is a senior interest rate and currency analyst for Columbia Threadneedle, based in Minneapolis. Uh, uh, Threadneedle is, uh, but joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thank you so much. Uh, just looking at the currencies here, um, and, you know, the euro up slightly, the the pound up uh, today. Uh, but you mentioned the ruble. Uh, the ruble's also uh, up uh, a little bit as well. 
Well, back at the day when I wanted to, I guess, go to a Broadway show, I'd stand in line in Times Square at the TKTS kind of thing and wondering, why am I doing this? This is so inconvenient. But I'm guessing there's a technology out there that can fix that. And in fact, there is. We welcome Brian Fenty. Brian is a co-founder and CEO of Today Ticks, based in New York City, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Today Ticks, does that solve my problem? We try to solve your problem, yes. We okay. started about uh, six years ago to take the TKTS booth and do all the heavy lifting of searching for discounts and putting it right in your in your hand uh, through a mobile app. And of course, now we're on a website and we're in 17 cities and doing a lot more than just that. Um, but that's really what it is. It's best prices, best seats, last minute, on demand. How did you create this? Well, my partner and I were not technologists, um, which is always a challenge, actually. You know, everybody always talks about the technical founder. Um, we were Broadway producers. We were private equity guys. Um, and I worked for the New York Yankees for a couple years. So we had very diverse experience. And we knew that Broadway was a broken business in terms of getting millennials to the table. Um, and so we sort of penciled out what was Uber doing and OpenTable and Airbnb and these great mobile millennial companies. What were they doing? And the answer was just great, simple, seamless technology, having everything at your fingertips and making sure that it was a complete solution. So talk to me about, so talk to me about the business of Broadway. Is it, is it a growing business? Is it a big business? Is this something that people need a technical solution for? It's an unbelievable business. It's it's often overlooked. So, you know, the first piece of it is Broadway, meaning the the five block radius in New York. And that's, you know, a multi-billion dollar uh, industry. It's grown more this year uh, than it did in any other year. It's, it's honestly, it's a resilient thanks industry. Thanks to Harry Potter. And thanks, thanks to Hamilton and Dear Evan Hansen. Yes. It's a great, it's the golden age of Broadway right now. It's just an amazing, amazing time. Um, so it's a huge industry, but you know, what most people don't know is it's twice the size of the film business on a revenue basis in the U.S. Um, so it's a big business, um, but it's hard to access. It feels inaccessible to people. It feels expensive. It feels hard to engage with. And so we're trying to break down those walls. And it's not just Broadway, right? I mean, it's, it's sort of theater more broadly. Uh, are you thinking of expanding into sports or into music or other types of live uh, ventures? So we started with theater traditionally, plays, musicals. We've gone to performing arts now, and we've sort of expanded our definition as we go to markets. So when we went to Chicago, comedy is everywhere. So if you don't have the second city, you're nobody. And so we went to Chicago, we got comedy. We have opera, we have dance, improv, immersive, sleep no more, you know, all of these different types of experiences. So really, as I say to our team, we don't compete with ticketing companies. We compete with a pitcher of margaritas and Netflix. That is, you know, ultimately what we're trying to do. That's, That's stiff competition. That <laughs> so Brian, I guess thinking about Broadway per se, the, you know, the five square blocks, you know, as my understanding is the kind of the theaters are kind of controlled by a handful of companies or a few companies. Did they welcome you? Did they embrace you? Did they, were they concerned about you? How do they, how do you kind of work with the big theater companies? They did not embrace us at the beginning. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, you know, this is a true story of disrupting. Uh, when we went and met with the three theater owners, you know, the first theater owner said, I own the tickets. You don't have them. Goodbye. Door shut. <laughs> the second theater owner that we talked to said, millennials, who needs them? They'll become adults someday. Shut wow. the door. The third theater owner said, Mobile, who needs it? No one's going to spend money on it. And so we said, okay, guys, fine. If we go try to build this, will you support us? And they said, you know what? Go try to build them. Uh, go try to build the technology. And so for the last six years, that's what we've been doing. And now five and a half million users later, um, I think we've proven that there really is a space for this. And you did just raise $73 million uh, from Great Hill Partners, uh, that which is a private equity company. 
what are you going to do with the money? So I'd say three main vehicles. One is talent, 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 talent. Make sure that we have the smartest people, the best subject matter experts. In terms of tech or in terms of? Tech, product, growth, marketing. So what's amazing is we have 1,300 theaters that work with us across the country and not a single salesperson on our team. And so that hopefully speaks to the, the brand that we've built among the, the venues um, and our audiences. So talent is number one. Um, number two is content, making sure that we have the best content out there. Um, millennials do hold you to a very high standard in terms of the types of content programming exclusivity that you have. And then the third piece is just data, data, data. So making sure that we use data to make the experience seamless for everyone so that if you open the app, it's different from when I open the app and we can see the shows that we want to see. So when I think of the ticketing experience, certainly in this country and really even globally, I think Ticketmaster. So how do you guys compete against the ticket masters of the world. So what we learned is that primary ticketers, because they have to do so many different things, they're selling for sports, concerts, large venues, small venues, their technology isn't great. And, and how do we validate that? It takes seven to nine minutes to buy a ticket on a major primary ticketing platform. On today ticks, it's 30 seconds or less. Oh, okay. um, so really what we do is we kill you with convenience um, <laughs> and we try to bring you through that funnel in a big way. And, and I think that's why we have such high ratings. Our, our net promoter score is about four times the next highest primary ticketer. How do you make money? Consumer fees. Um, and, and what I'll tell you is though, we make it slow and steady. So we have fixed fees for our consumers. We have the lowest fees in the industry. And our view is to build a community of as many theater goers, arts goers, and quite frankly, anyone who wants to do something in a night. We're your customer, we're your place to go, and uh, we grow from there. I know the Tonys are Sunday night, I believe on CBS, uh, when Broadway comes together to celebrate uh, all the great work of the year. Does that drive business if a play wins best musical or best picture? How important is that? There's a few awards. So obviously it's the moment of the year for, for theater and it's an amazing evening. And this year James Corden's hosting, so it'll be yep. a blast. Um, but what I'll say is there's one or two awards that really move the needle. And as you say, it's best musical, um, it's best revival of a musical, it's best play. Those are the three awards that can actually make what we call boffo, but you know, make the box office really hit. Thank you so much for being with us. I have to say, uh, Today Ticks is something that I've just recently come to learn about, and I'm excited. <laughs> is TKTS still there, the booth in Times Square? Still there, okay. no mobile, no website, okay. still waiting in okay. line. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Fenty, co-founder and CEO of Today Ticks, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios, uh, disrupting the theater industry. Right now we're looking at a market still searching for direction, taking a breather after a uh, series of risk-off moves and then fluctuations around. Uh, coming up, though, the focus really is going to be always uh, on Washington, D.C., which is also the focus of markets right now, uh, Bloomberg politics, policy, uh, power, and law. Amy Morris, what do you have on? on oh, uh, so she's going to be talking about U.S. and Mexico extending their talks, uh, which, of course, markets are expecting that there will be some kind of deal. Also, we got some numbers with respect to the trade deficit showing a stalling out of imports and exports. We're going to be looking ahead to the jobs data as well. Uh, meanwhile, we are looking at a, a day finishing up. I mean, honestly, today yep. I'm, I'm, I find it fascinating to me that we're taking a breather, and yet there still is complacency. There is. Yep. Deals, deals are going to get done. Deals it's are going to get done. <laughs> I'm Lisa Abramowitz along with Paul Sweeney. This is Bloomberg Markets. 
Tensions are rising between the U.S. and Mexico. This certainly has hit particularly the automaker shares uh, pretty hard, considering how much supply chain or sort of intra-company activity goes cross-border. Joining us to talk about what the effect is on small businesses is Hector Barreto. He's chairman of the Latino Coalition, former U.S. Small Business Administrator uh, under George W. Bush uh, through 2006. Joining us from Irvine, California. Hector, I'm so glad that you're here with us. What are you hearing from the people who you represent, small business owners, about the potential impact of these additional tariffs on goods from Mexico? Well, they're very concerned. And as you know, uh, probably 97% of all businesses in the United States that do international trade are small businesses. They've seen uh, their businesses grow over the last six months or so, and they don't want to see that stop. So they really feel we're kind of at a tipping point right now. So, Hector, how about on the other side of the border? What are you hearing from your contacts there about how the business community in Mexico views kind of these rising trade tensions? Well, I was just down there last week. We we opened up an office for our organization, and two months ago I met with the president of Mexico. They were cautiously optimistic. You know, they've kind of gotten used to some of the rhetoric, but they're much more paying attention to the actions. They know that, you know, they can't respond to every tweet, every press release, every news, uh, you know, but they've seen some positive signs, and obviously uh, a lot of those leaders, business leaders and government leaders, are in Washington today to talk to their counterparts and see if we can get to some kind of a compromise or solution on this issue. It's so, it's so interesting because we hear about positive signs from people, and certainly the market doesn't think that there's going to be some sort of uh, increase in tariffs on Mexico that's substantial, at least. Uh, that's what a lot of analysts and fund managers seem to be saying this morning. And yet President Trump seems to be the one driving the bus here, and it's sort of unclear. He's not backed away from his stance on tariffs. Right. Well, you know, uh, ironically, uh, in the last quarter, Mexico was our largest trading partner. We overtook China. So, you know, they're starting to see some positive signs. And again, they they don't want to see that derailed. And at the end of the day, you're right, president's going to decide. But there's going to be other voices that are going to be part of this equation. You're starting to see members of Congress, both sides of the aisle, that are very concerned about this. They're tracking this issue very, very closely. And the last thing we need to do is put a break on this economy. The economy's been pretty good over the last, you know, year, uh, better than we've seen it over the preceding six, seven years. And so, uh, you know, this is the wrong time to actually, you know, derail the economy. And we're both affected. You know, days when we could say, oh, they're going to be hurt more than we are, I, I don't see it that way. I think we're very interdependent. And if one side gets hurt, the other side is going to get hurt. And at the end of the day, you know that those costs are going to be passed on to consumers. So, you know, there's some big stakes at, at hand right now. So, the Hector, the businesses that you represent, what are their, how are they thinking about the Trump administration's, you know, use of tariffs to kind of curb immigration? Well, it, it can well. Uh, they don't like the fact that these two issues are being conjoined. I was in the White House yesterday. I'm actually in D.C., and uh, they were doing everything they could to say, look, they're two separate issues. We're going to continue on the trade track. We want USMCA passed, but we've got to deal with this uh, immigration crisis. And it is a crisis. You can understand why there's so much frustration in the administration. They've not been able to turn this thing around. For months, people were saying, "Is oh, it's not a big deal. It's going to go away. It's just seasonal. We haven't seen that. We've seen spikes at the border that we've never seen before. So there is a mutual responsibility on both sides of the border. 
Mexico can do a better job of enforcing their southern border. We need to work with Mexico as our number one trading partner and work on things like, uh, you know, we used to have something called the Merida Initiative where we would work with Mexico, and we've done that with other countries. We need to go back to those kinds of uh, cooperative efforts. I guess that, you know, it's interesting because if you are in Washington, what is sort of the consensus among the people you're speaking with who are within the administration as to the path of these negotiations? Because it seems like this kind of came, I don't want to say out of the blue, but kind of out of the blue. Well, the, the administration would say, for the people who say it's coming out of the blue, they haven't been listening because, you know, it hasn't been that long ago that the president was very upset. He was talking about closing the border. There was a time when he said he was going to do away with NAFTA and not have anything to replace it with. Um, you know, he's talked about tariffs before. Obviously, we're doing tariffs with China. So, uh, you know, the, the business community, and I say this across the board, you know, I also sit on the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Board of Directors. Big business, medium business, small business are all watching this very closely. And by the way, it's not just our businesses that are watching it. Businesses around the world are watching it. China's watching this to see if they can actually come to some agreement with the administration. So trust is in low supply right now. But at least they're talking, they're at the table with each other, and that's much better than just screaming across the fence to each other. Hector Barreto, chairman of the Latino Coalition and former U.S. Small Business uh, Administrator, thank you so much for joining us and helping us uh, understand better what is uh, you know, rising trade tensions between the, the U.S. and Mexico. They don't seem to be abating, but uh, there is, a, as Hector mentioned, Lisa, a group of Mexican business people and government officials in Washington today meeting with uh, U.S. representatives. Uh, the hope, obviously, is that uh, some resolution, at least a temporary resolution, can forestall uh, the tariffs that are threatened to be uh, going in place. Place. Uh, but clearly, as Hector mentioned, this you know, Mexico is our largest trading partner. I guess just recently became our, uh, you know, certainly right there with China. So uh, it's not just China; it's also Mexico, uh, and these issues are certainly weighing on uh, the marketplaces. Let's turn our focus now to automobiles, in particular, the merger that wasn't Fiat Chrysler, uh, saying that it is no longer uh, going to continue its bid for Renault. Renault shares tumbling more than 7%. Both sides blame each other. Joining us now, Kevin Tynan, Senior Autos Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. So who's to blame, Kevin? Well, um, everybody, (laughs) nobody. Um, So I I think... and, and there's also Nissan involved in here too. So, as difficult as a deal would be between FCA and and Renault, you know, you, you also have that Nissan angle in there as well. So I think, you know, doing a deal between two big companies like that is difficult enough. And then when you add in uh, the Nissan angle, and I'm not sure it's completely dead yet. Um, you know, it, it's not. It wouldn't have been unlike Sergio Marchioni, and you see that uh, down through uh, FCA management now and up to the chairman and, and John Elcon to say it's as important to sit down as it is to walk away. So I think uh, there may be a little bit of, of gamesmanship going on here, um, and then the deal might not be completely dead just yet. Well, Kevin, I think when we talked to you, uh, you know, when this deal was announced, you know, one of the things that uh, you mentioned to us was the Fiat Chrysler's need for scale. Um, Presumably that need is still there. What do you think their options are for them? Yeah, and I think, look, that that's a company that has spent a lot of time and effort to make itself very attractive to, you know, this kind of situation, M&A uh, or alliances and partnerships. So, you know, it doesn't end here for sure. Um, it, 
if if this does fall apart ultimately, I think it takes two players off the table. It probably takes Renault and most likely Peugeot off the table. But you know, this is a company that has spent years uh, and a lot of time to be this lean, basically Ram and Jeep business, you know, focused in North America on the light truck market, which is now 70% of a volume here uh, and huge profitability there to to look like it does to be attractive to other companies. So uh, how bad is this for Renault if this deal is off the table? And frankly, if any other suitor uh, sort of starts to think about other options just because it is so complicated? Right. Yeah. And, and I think the, the issue is, is the valuation. And we talked about this on the show over the weekend. Um, you know, is that valuation of Renault. And, and while that's one of the aspects that makes it attractive to other automakers and that uh, European presence, uh, it's also what puts them at a disadvantage in negotiations. So, you know, it's it's not unlike buying a buying a car, right? The the seller wants as much as they can get, and the buyer wants to get it for as little as possible. And that's really the situation here. So, Kevin, thinking about you mentioned Peugeot and Peugeot, and um, it's just interesting. The French government here seems to be a real uh, sticking point for deal making in the auto industry. Um, how does that really play out? If you're a buyer, you absolutely have to win over the government, correct? Yeah, I mean, and I think that's why I say, you know, Peugeot might be off the table as well because it looks like it's the same, you know, angry father, different daughter kind of scenario there. Um, you know, that if if and and Peugeot also in talking about valuation is a much more valuable company in that sense. Um, and I think the issue with FCA is they really want to control whatever company emerges from this or or whatever the alliance looks like going forward. And I think that, again, is part of the issue with Nissan, right? They're they're saying the stake in the enterprise gets smaller, um, and FCA really steps in and commands this this enterprise from the top down, uh, and that's difficult and even for the government to accept that. Meanwhile, from Fiat Chrysler's standpoint, is there some pressure to buy something else or sort of amass more scale right now? Do you think that that's something in the near term that we're going to see? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think this was, you know, back in Sergio's days, this was what was, you know, the goal. Um, I think through this process, you're starting to see start to see it happen. And again, I don't think this is the end of it. Um, it just may be with different partners. But, you know, this company has worked itself into this shape for this very reason. And just because of uh, one bad date here, I don't think they, they sort of get off the market. Kevin Tynan, thank you so much. Kevin Tynan, a senior auto analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, calling us on the phone from BI's headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey. Lisa, I'm just looking at the trailing 12-month stock price performance. Ford down 13%, General Motors down 7%, Fiat Chrysler down 27%. I think uh, there's really is a, a concern here among auto investors, I think, uh, obviously, about long-term demand for Yes. Autos. Yes, definitely that. Although we have to sort of put in the caveat here, which is uh, that Mexico-U.S. trade yep. would hit the automakers in the U.S. much more substantially than arguably any other group of uh, industries. So that's been an additional hit in the recent weeks that's sort of come out of uh, out of nowhere. Yeah, exactly right. So, and we saw that just with uh, some of the commentaries from some of the auto manufacturers. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. 
I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.